Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, and thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. I don't know how the Diamondbacks came out tonight. I don't really want to know in case I burst into tears. Um, but anyway, good for them for making it to Game 7 against Philadelphia, and we'll see how it goes. But we are here to talk about two different holidays. I am wearing my Halloween witch earrings for Paula, and I'm wearing my red shoes for Spencer because we are talking about Halloween and then we are talking about Christmas, right? Right. Right. So um, it gives them free reign to do some things that are a little maybe unusual, expansive in a mystery. What do you think, Peter? Well, first I want to say that the new rules in baseball, because you brought baseball up and you opened the door, I think are terrific. I haven't been watching for a few years, even though I'm very into baseball. In fact, long ago, I wrote a book called The Fan that was made into a movie about, it's a crime fiction story with, with baseball. Robert De Niro played the fan, blah, blah, blah. But I was very into baseball for a long time, and then I kind of left it. And now watching it on TV with the new rules, it goes so fast, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But as to your question, which has to do with doing unusual things in fiction, right, with Christmas, um, I write the Chet and Bernie mystery series, and I, this, I stole the template from Arthur Conan Doyle, right? Who had the Sherlock Holmes, like sh there's Sherlock Holmes, and then there's Doctor Watson. So Sherlock Holmes is the detective, Doctor Watson, I mean, and Doctor Watson is the sidekick who tells the story in the first person. So the Chet and Bernie series is just like that. Bernie is the mm -hmm. detective, Chet is the sidekick who tells the story in the first person. But unlike Doctor Watson. Chet is a dog. Other than that, it's the same. <laughs> so, Except in this, there it's really an Agatha Christie book. Okay, so this, all right. So I, this is the 14th one up on the rooftop, but they can be read in any order. Ch the, but the most important thing to understand about all of them is Chet's not a talking dog. Okay. He's as, hum as, as He's not a human in a dog suit. He's as canine as I could make him. And that's, I think, what sets this series maybe slightly apart. All right, so in Up on the Rooftop, I got this idea that I wanted to start with something very like this, what's happening right now, which was you know a, a writer talking to a group in a bookstore. That's how the idea came to me, but this writer was going to be, as Barbara was saying, like an English Agatha Christie typewriter, highly successful, who writes only Christmas mysteries. And they all take place in the Cotswolds, and the amateur sleuth is Trudy Tremaine. And so the Bernie and Chet's next-door neighbor, the Parsons, this elderly couple, want to... This is their favorite. She's This is Dame Ariadne is the name of the writer. And she's their favorite writer, and she's in town, so they they want to go to the store. So he, Bernie, and Chet take them to the bookstore, and that's where they meet Dame Ariadne. There's a little bit of difficulty with her gold pen, which kind of disappears. Chet recovers it, and that puts them into her life, so that when something very serious happens, they're the ones she calls. But as soon as I had the idea, I thought, my God this writer of Christmas Mysteries, I'm going to be able to write little passages of her work. Now, this is a very dangerous thing for a writer to think because, because those little passages can get very long 
and swallow up your whole book, which you're trying to write. But I think in the end, it kind of, there's a little bit, therefore, of what writing is all about in this book, but it's all disguised in a Christmas mystery. That's what I would say about it. Right. Well, the, I thought, I think the title's a bit of a stretch, but I don't hold you accountable for the title. I'm not accountable. Totally. <laughs> Here's early in this series. So Chet's on Facebook. Um, Chet the dog fo- yeah. slash Facebook. And um, very early on, so there's a whole group of people that come there a lot, like multi-thousands of them. And um, I noticed that they began to send in title suggestions, which at first I blithely ignored. But then I thought, God, these are better than mine. And, <laughs> and so I have a whole file. Really, there are hundreds in them, and so all the the lay the last four or five titles have all been reader suggestions. So if you don't particularly like this one, I have, I can send you the name of the, the, <laughs> the reader. I believe she's in Illinois, and and you can deal with her. But so up on the rooftop, but one of the it sort of applies to the story because you can see that there are these reindeer up on the roof. That's where Dame Ariadne writes all her Christmas stories. And she does have some reindeer, and one goes missing. And that's how Chet and Bernie get involved, because Chet's the best tracker in the state. And the reindeer that goes missing, what would his name be? Come on, guys. All of you could guess. Of Rudy. course. Exactly. Exactly. It has to be Rudy. Yeah, right. Now, switching to Halloween, uh, we actually have, again, a literary theme, because what we have is a dead poet in a haunted house, and the possibility that the poet has left literary works yet to be discovered, right? Right. So, Paula, tell us a little bit, because Paula has two dogs. She has Elvis and she has Susie Bear, right? Right. Right. Yes, well, this was fun because they're set, the books are set in New England where I live, and, you know, Halloween has a long storied history in New England. So I got to have haunted houses and I got to have dead poets. In a way, the book is sort of my homage to A.S. Byatt's possession, right? So you have this backstory about the Victorian poets who lived in the house and the house is full of secrets. And Mercy Carr, my heroine, she lives in a small cabin and the cabin's getting crowded because she has a teenager with a baby that she's taken in and she has Elvis, her bomb-sniffing dog, and she has Troy Warner, the, the game warden, and his search and rescue dog, Susie Bear, and it's just too many people in too small a place. So they're looking for a bigger place, and there's this old Victorian pile in the woods where these poets lived, and it's up for sale. And the house is famous. You know, it's that local haunted house, right, where everybody dares everybody to go spend the night. And when she's in middle school, that creepy kid we all hate dares her to spend the night in the house. And... While she's there, she encounters the ghost, the famous ghost witch of Grackle Tree. I have to say that this morning, I went to breakfast at a place here, and it was full of grackles. So you have lots of grackles here. We have lots of grackles in New England, too, and they're, they're fabulous birds for a mystery. So she goes, she has an encounter with this witch, this ghost witch of Grackle, grackle Tree, and she remembers. So years later, when she's looking for a place, and this old place comes up for sale, she decides, ooh, this is a great old house. She goes to look at it. She wants it desperately. And of course, there's a dead body in the library. So 
Boy, there's Agatha Christie once again, you know, her influence. Yes. You just can hardly get away from her. No, you, you can't. I you know. can't. But if I haven't mentioned that there's a particularly great tree, it isn't just that there's a haunted house, but the witch is a witch in the Grackle Tree. Right, which it's is Grackle sort of Tree Farm. And a huge old, one of those huge old sugar maples like we have at our place in New England. And it's a couple hundred years old, this sugar maple, and it's full of thousands of grackles. So it's very noisy because they're noisy birds, but it's also spooky. It's a perfect place for a witch to live. Definitely a haunted house, definitely a witch with literary undertones. So is it? Is it, do you think, sort of mandatory to write a holiday mystery that has some sort of bookish element? Well, mandatory. I mean, there are no laws in this. Well, is there a push, <laughs> let me say? I, I mean, I... Okay, so this is... All right. I confess that in their 14 books in the Chet and, mystery, Chet and Bernie mystery series, and this is the second one that's a Christmas book. The first was It's a Wonderful Wolf. And... The, and also not my title. And and this one, so the publisher said, would you be interested in writing another Christmas one? And so at first I thought, no, but you see, here's what happens. There's a part of your brain that is not under your control when you're in this business. And that part of my brain came up with an idea that was very different from the first Christmas book. Right, so so the argument where that I could have rationally, well, I'll just be repeating myself, was shot down because I wouldn't be. This was completely right. different. The, uh, the the first Christmas book actually had to do with a lost Baroque painting that no one even knew was buried out here in the desert, dating back to the year, early years of the Spanish Caravaggio, all this stuff, and the painting itself. The painting itself that's missing had a Christmas not Christmas, but the original Jesus kind of thing, the flight from Egypt was in this painting. So that was sort of one approach. I wanted these books even to actually be some somewhat about Christmas and what it's really about, as well as like the fun of it. So that was that one. This one completely different, because as I mentioned, instead of painting, this one is literature. Specifically, there's this, you know, De Mariadne, the, who writes these Christmas mysteries, who's written 99. She's stuck on the 100th, by the way. And so I knew, as soon as I knew she was stuck on the 100th, I knew there'd be a scene where Bernie sees the manuscript like on, on, her, on her laptop and, go, and tries to you know, get her going <laughs> somehow. He finds out that writing is not so easy. And, <laughs> um, but, so, but also, okay, so she... She can only write under wintry conditions. So although she's half English, she has a whole town in the Colorado mountains where even if there's no snow, she blows snow throughout the entire town. And she has this whole gingerbread type um, setup of all these houses. She writes, and they all have names, and she writes in the Dickens house, right? So I had Dickens stuff happening in here too. And as she writes, she imported a herd of reindeer from Lapland, and the reindeer are on her roof, and she likes the sound of their hooves. So the snow is all around, and the hooves of the reindeer, and that gets her in the mood to write these books. 
But in her past, even though she's not quite aware of it, there's a big dark secret. And that the machinery of that is moving all the time in this little artificial town from the days before it was artificial. And those things kind of come together. So there's, I think in all the Chet and Bernie mysteries, there's a light element. And underneath, though, there's the same kind of element you'll get in darker crime fiction, but it's leavened by this other force. I'm enchanted to think that Johnny writes Christmas mysteries, and this would be her hundredth. How old is this woman? No, so she's... Well, wait, okay, now look. Let's take... Okay, let's take... We, you all know Georges Simenon, right? right? He wrote the Maigret stories. Yeah. Not stories, no. He wrote... Beside that, he wrote other novels, but he wrote over 400 right. novels. Yes. Okay, so it's... Not, more they than were short, though. Women they were short. With right. more than 400 women. Right. Oh. That was what he was okay. really famous he, for. <laughs> okay. Producing a note that, sorry, is X-rated. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Okay, he... Let's put it this way. He, he was married, and but in the same household, there existed... Okay? Dot, dot, dot. And... <laughs> But that would, and then sometimes he also went into town. <laughs> okay, can I put it that way? But he, the quality, he okay, he could write a book in a week. Yeah. Which I can't do, but or I can't even come close, and I don't even try, uh, because in, in writing you have to find your own rhythms. But the quality was high. Yeah. Almost universally, the quality was high, which kind of tells you something. It's it's like if you said to Paul McCartney. You know, go doodle around on the piano. Okay, those doodles would not be like your doodles and my doodles on the piano. And I think even on the days when Simonon didn't have a really good story idea, his writing was good. Yeah. And that and he got that on the page. So I you know, I think it's not odd that this woman would have written this many. They all, first of all, in a series, a lot of the big decisions are made in the first book, like who the main character is going to be, where it's going to take place, all that. So Dame Mariadne didn't have to do that. It takes place in the village of Potherington, of course, with made-up village in the Cotswolds. And some, the vicar, the major, you know, the lord, all that, the, you know, the recurring characters. So, But she's stuck on the 100th, and there's a reason for it. And Bernie and Chet find out that reason. No, my, my question was, if she only writes Christmas mysteries, does so she publish multiple Christmas mysteries every year? That was the problem oh, I had. No, no, she won a year. Yeah, but if she's, this is her hundredth book, oh, and it's oh, only see, one oh, a year. Yeah, oh, oh, there'd be more than one in some of the years. There yeah. has to be more than yeah. one. <laughs> no, right. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. there'd be way more than one. Right, just doing three. the math it here. Right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It. All right. Everything I just said for 10 minutes, <laughs> delete. Patrick, can you delete that? And and, and we'll move on. Sorry, that was a, I, no, no, my fault. It was an unfortunate pedestrian note on my part. No, it wasn't pedestrian. There we are. The little building blocks have to be right. right. All Christmas, all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you could publish Christmas mysteries all year long. There's nothing to prevent you from actually doing that. But there is kind of a, a push in publishing to do seasonal mysteries, sometimes Valentine's, sometimes, you know, sort of an Easter theme. Mm -hmm. But Christmas is usually the big one. And part of it is because you can have such cool titles. Right. You can have cool titles, but it also, I think, Christmas is a gift-giving time. Right. Right? And... Do books make a good gift? 
I, I, I like mean, getting th books. There's a any. surge of Irish books that come out amazingly in February for March. Um, and there's, you know, Valentine. What, what's happening in publishing, though, which I think is really interesting, is turning into the fashion industry. You know, we're there one entire season ahead. So if you want to actually go buy something to wear in the summer, you have to buy it in February. Because if you go to buy it in June, they're already showing winter, you know, wool clothes and the whole bit. And we're kind of getting to that in publishing, where the Christmas mysteries are out heavily in September, winding up in October. And by the time we get to November, they're really looking at Valentine. And I try to resist that because I think, you know, that I don't want to decorate the store for Christmas till the day after Thanksgiving. I just don't want to push the, the whole thing, right? So you think life is moving fast enough? It's too fast. No, 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 no definitely no, too, too you fast. You need to help. Right. So I find myself making decisions when I'm promoting, writing to you guys about books and promoting them. Do I really want to talk about this book in September when I'd really rather tell you about it in November because that's when you might be more interested in buying a Christmas mystery? So I'm finding myself making choices that I never anticipated. It's kind of weird. I mean, from my point of view, I try not to think about this. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I can. No, I hear that. No, because we're, we're coming from different parts of this, you know, of writing, yeah. the business, yeah. the books, books as well. Okay, and I'm not saying this has to be for every writer, but I, I just try to do what I do, which is the writing, and that's all I'm really cut out to do. And the rest, I'm not a particularly good businessman. In fact, I'm a particularly bad businessman. So. Uh, but I can do this one thing I can do. I've been able to have a pretty long career doing this because I'd say I think this is my 46th novel. So wow. and I still can do it and I'll keep doing it as long as some of you want me to. And I can still do it. That's I wasn't I, holding you personally responsible for having <laughs> up on the rooftop up in October. But, but there, uh, there's another one of my personality <laughs> flaws right there, exposed. Right? But, um, all right, so let's talk about the Halloween book we're here to discuss tonight that actually is here for Halloween, which is yeah. Paula's book. Did anyone suggest to you that it should be a Halloween book, or did it just sort of um, work out with your, you know, that this was a story you wanted to tell about a haunted house and the grackle tree? Well, each book is set in a different season, right? So um, because New England has such beautiful seasons and they're so different from one another and the risks of each season are so different, whether it's flooding or snow or ice or heat or whatever happens to be. So I was coming around to book, this is book five, so I was repeating autumn and said, so, okay, here's autumn again, which is a beautiful period in New England, spectacular, but it's also Halloween, and I hadn't done Halloween, so I thought that was fun, because you can do witches and ghosts and druids, and my editor kept saying, okay, it's enough. I'm like, no, no, I can make those druids work. Who doesn't, who, I want to keep the druids. Let me keep the druids. So I definitely chose Halloween just because I thought it would be so much fun, you know. Did the, did the house, um, come along after you decided to do Halloween or did you have an, the story in mind with this wonderful house? Actually, it's more than a house. It's, it's an estate. Right. You know, there's, there's outbuildings. Um, it's not just like one house. And the tree, the grackle tree is critical to all this. Right. Uh, but did that, 
was that in your mind first, and then you decided you could sort of slant it towards Halloween? I'm sort of obsessed with houses, I have to say, especially in New England. Like, the house we live in is built in 1760, a very old house, right? And houses are haunted, and, and the older the house, the more secrets the house has. So I was definitely looking for the right house, and I wanted it to be Victorian because it's Halloween, Victorian Gothic, right? And I went through several houses over the course of writing the book before I decided on this final house. Uh, I wanted it to be really full of secrets, full of secrets, full of mysteries, right? Not just, not just related to the people who lived there over the course of those 150 years, but in the house itself, that the house itself would have mysteries. And so I really focused in on the house. I, I love houses, so that was part of it. So was the house kind of a character, would you say? Absolutely, absolutely. And the tree. And <laughs> the it's tree, not just yeah. the house. And the grackle, the yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And, and in point of fact, this is a story um, that ranges back over time because the, the poet is no longer living. Right. And um, the house estate is... Finally up for sale. What, why don't you give us the setup? Because there's a reason the estate has come on the market. Right. Well, so the, the house was built. It was built in, um, by a Civil War hero in 1866. And he loses his money and lots of terrible things happen to him. And so then one of the New York 400 families in you know, late 1800s buys the house as a summer home. And they have two girls. And these sisters have a falling out over time, right? And so the, the parents left the house to both sisters in the hope that they would reconcile, right? Of course, that didn't happen. And finally, the, the poet, she dies relatively young, but the, but the other sister lives a very, lo very long time. She dies at 103, and finally the house is up for sale. But now all the secrets that the house has been harboring all this time, including the falling out between the sisters comes to light. And the death of the poet, which we right. can't ignore. Right. right. So um, why is Mercy? Mercy Carr is the heroine. She is a war veteran. She's an Afghanistan war veteran, and she has a um, veteran dog called Elvis. Elvis was a um, soldier dog, so to right. speak. Um, and when... Mercy's great love, who was the owner of Elvis, uh, or his handler, uh, he was killed. So Mercy is suddenly left on her, left on her own, and so is Elvis. So it's not that easy, as I understand it. Just because a dog is a service dog, they are not always easily retired, and people can sort of take them at at you know at will. It's a complicated thing to yes. let one of the dogs go. Absolutely. And the dogs are, you know, usually one man, one woman dogs. Right. And I actually got the idea for Elvis and Mercy. When I first wrote the series, I did a fundraiser for Mission Canine Rescue. And they're an organization that finds these dogs who've served our country as bomb sniffing dogs and army dogs. And they make sure that they have good forever homes once they leave the service. And that doesn't always happen. You know, the army is okay, sort of okay about making sure those dogs go back to a handler for the rest of their lives. 
but the defense contractor dogs often end up in kill shelters. And so what this rescue organization does is they find these dogs, they rescue them, and they give them forever homes. So I made Elvis one of those dogs. So when her fiancé dies in battle and she's wounded um, and the dog gets PTSD, you know, he, the last thing he says to her is, take care of my dog. So she has to find a dog. They have to go home to Vermont to the mountains to sort of march off their grief because they both lost their man. They both lost their mission. Now they have to make the transition from the military to civilian life, which is never easy. I was an army brat. I watched my father and lots of, of military make that transition. It can be a very difficult transition, especially when they're coming from combat. So that was what started the whole series. So what, what breed of dog is Elvis? Elvis is a, a Malinois. They're sort of, if you ask a Malinois owner, they'll say they're smarter, sleeker German shepherds, basically. They're Belgian shepherds. And we actually have a Malinois, and they are wildly fierce, insanely smart. They speak English, basically. They're just amazingly smart. Elvis is a great dog. Now, there's another dog um, in the series because Mercy eventually winds up spending time with a, he's a game warden, right? Called right. Troy, and Troy has a dog of his own. And what, what breed of dog is Susie? Susie Bear is a Newfoundland. And they are the complete opposite of Malinois. <laughs> and I know this for sure because we have a Newfoundland retriever mix, and we just got, we have a five-month-old Newfoundland puppy who is already 60 pounds, and the biggest klutz you'd ever want to see. So you have, you know, the Malinois, who's this graceful, athletic, smart, fiercely intense, focused dog. And then you have the Newfoundland, who's just like, life is a party, right? (laughs) And you're my new best friend. So they're very, very different. And it's fun to compare and contrast them in in the series and (laughs) and at home. So tell us about Bernie. What kind of a dog is Bernie? Or Chet, sorry. No, you make a very good point because Chet often says, doesn't say, but thinks, because he can't, doesn't speak, um, that he and Bernie are alike in a lot of ways. So that's a very, well, we don't, Chet doesn't, all Chet knows about what he is, is what he overhears from people who are rude enough to describe his appearance in front of him. So he's clearly a mix of some sort. And sometimes a character in a book speculates about what the mix is. So that happens in this book, for example. Um, all he knows is he's a hundred plus pounder, and his ears don't match. And that's based, and he's a mix. That's it. That's all we know. About. Well, I just brought it up because there's a portrait of a dog a on the cover of, of the book. <laughs> and excuse me. And the portrait of the dog, Chet in the Chet and Bernie series has changed on the cover from time, depending on who the art director was. Ah. So it's really up to you, the reader, to picture Chet. This is like a simulacrum of Chet, but it's not necessarily accurate. But I do like that dog. Yeah. He's alert. He's big. And he means business. Yeah. 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 And you didn't complain when the dogs changed on the covers? Well, okay. I don't know about you, but yes, I complain. But here's what happened. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, you say, "Oh, I don't like that dog." 
And they say, okay, well, we'll get back to you. And they, this is your editor, and the editor calls. Well, we ran it by marketing. And marketing likes this cover, or likes this rendition. Right, right Paula? That's, so marketing is the club that they hit you over the head with. Right. Because let's say the book doesn't do as well as they anticipated, but they made the change you wanted. They then say, well, marketing said, didn't marketing, that type of thing. So I don't, the right, from the, the first word to the last, that's me. So I'm totally responsible for that. Other parts are compromises. Uh, Is that good enough? No, well, that's it's, interesting because I always used to fight with people because I was an acquisitions editor before I became a writer. Oh, okay, so you know both sides. Right, and I would go to those meetings as the editorial person and fight with the marketing department to get what I thought should be on the cover. So I fought because in the first book, you know, that Malinois' ears are perked. If you know Malinois, they have these yes, big tri yeah. triangular ears, and believe me, they are – if if – the dog is focused on something, those ears are up. They are up. And so in the first book, the ears were not up. And I said, oh, no, you know, the ears have to be up. And the, uh, the art directors, they always say, oh, but, you know, that's a real dog. I got it off the Internet. And I'm like, I don't care. You know, the ears have to be up. Right. And fortunately, my editor is a true dog person, and so the ears are always up. So, yeah. So if any of you follow us on Instagram, you will note that I put my puppy um, of reading a copy of, of of Spencer Quinton's book, and he's a little tiny Yavapoo that weighs 18 pounds up against these giant dogs. And I thought, you know, it'd be really cruel if if the giant dogs came to life, they'd probably eat even one bite. Um, but you know, it's it's amazing how we love dogs. Of all sorts, you know, mm -hmm. whatever their breed, whatever their size. It is we amazing. really bond with them, right? Yeah. That's a huge subject. That's what makes, th that's both Paula's and mine and any other books involved. What really makes them work is if you can get into that bonding. Yeah. Because it's not a one-way thing. It's a two-way thing between us and them. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely thing. I think it... It's probably something that that happened through evolution. Mm -hmm. We in the you know I'm not going to say primitive because maybe they would have done a way better job than us, but like early forms of our species <laughs> and early forms of dogs got together, and and it's very possible that there were genetic changes in both, not mm -hmm. just the dogs to adapt to us, but to us to adapt to them. And so my the underlying theory that these this series is based on that the humans that are most dog like in in the Chet and Bernie series do the best. Absolutely interesting point. So back to you. Um, what we have is we have Mercy and we have Troy the game warden who over the course of five books have sort of become a couple despite the really intense grief that Mercy and Elvis right. have been feeling. Uh, but, you know, grief is that thing with feathers, as Emily Dickinson wrote, and gradually over time it kind of softens or flies, whatever it is. And anyway, a new phase starts. But part of the challenge for Mercy and for Troy 
is whether the dogs will, sorry, I know it sounds as though the whole ceiling's coming down. We are getting it fixed. I meant to warn you, but I was too late tonight not to flinch <laughs> when it crunches. Um, but anyway, we have to, we now have the two people that um, are merge, working towards coupledom, but we have Elvis, who's the Malinois, and Susie, who is the Newfoundland, um, and that could actually have torpedoed the whole thing, couldn't it, if they had really hated each other, and dogs can. Oh, yes, I have four dogs at home, and at times they hate each other. It helps that Elvis is a boy dog, and Susie Bear is a girl dog, because um, then there's no, there's less fighting between those pairs, which I'm finding out the hard way. <laughs> I have one male dog and three female dogs, that the female dogs fight for dominance and preference so it's, it's very interesting but so that helps plus Newfoundlands get along with practically everybody you know they're the easygoing easygoing type dogs but the Malinois not so much so I think that because they each still have their person Elvis has Mercy Susie Bear has Troy and you know there's not a lot of co <laughs> you know there's only so much co-parenting co going on they each have their side of the bed they you know right. but they're also both big dogs yes and you know mentioning my little tiny dog who only weighs 18 pounds would be completely out of it right if you know tried right. to merge in a household that had a newfoundland yeah. it'd be tragic yes. yeah <laughs> it'd be stepped on and that would be <laughs> the end of the scooter you know or yeah. just one bite <laughs> yes exactly so you, had, you have to really think about that when you set up the series you know did you always intend them to go towards coupledom? Well, I did. I didn't know how long it would take. My, you know, okay. um, This is book five. This is book five, yeah. Um, and, and I'm kind of on schedule, at least according to my editor, who you know, supposedly knows all these things, um, that, you know, that you know, nothing can happen. If it's going to happen, it can't happen until book five or whatever. But, um, and I think you know, there's always that challenge when you have a couple, you know, that whole decision you know when do they get together and does that does that do readers like that do they not like that will they lose interest in them as a couple but i don't think so i mean i look at series like deborah crombie's series right where she has if you it's the gemma was it gemma james and duncan kincaid series a police procedural and over time i think she's on book 18 or 19 and over time you see that couple come together, come, go apart, come together, you know, make a family, do all these things. So I think, I think the challenge is, is to make sure that there's always an obstacle for them, right? There's always conflict. You know, there was a, a, a wisdom back in the 90s, because, you know, I've been doing this since 1989, that um, you should not, you should not ever get a couple married because right. it would take right. all the romance and all the tension. This is why Janet Ivanovich at Dirty 30, um, there's still, you know, um, three potential characters in it. She's never going to settle. But I also think that um, the way the way we look at relationships has evolved over 30-some years. And it's, I think there's more pressure now for for... I might be wrong here, but I think there's a little, not, not pressure maybe, but more acceptance of the idea that people can become a couple and still have constant conflict. I don't know about you guys, but you know, yeah. I deal with it every yeah. day. Um, how about you, right. Peter? You've been married a long time. 
but we're still married. Right? I know. So, right. Exactly. I mean, there, yes. I mean, there's a, like a push pull that always happens, and okay, and it could be on the healthy side or not. And I've been lucky that way too. But on the point of you know, if you have marriage, then you've sucked out the oxygen of the story. Right. I think there is actually. I don't know. It depends how you handle it. But in the Chet and Bernie series, we be when it begins, Bernie is divorced from Lita, and then he and Susie, who's this journalist, get together, and, and they're. But it falls apart because they're just their careers. It was just, and she's had to go to England and that. And now there's Weatherly, who's a a, a cop in the same town as as where Bernie is, and and they're kind of together. But what's going to happen? I don't know. Well, you can you can have multiple relationships going on. Yes, exactly. But to, I think if there's going to be a wedding scene, that might be the last scene. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think Paula handles um, coupling really well in this book, and yes. there is a, a a whole thing that's done as a flashback and I told her we were having dinner which is why we were slightly late that when I read it I loved it but I couldn't remember the reason that the earlier wedding the one that precipitated the fell apart um and you know that reminds me that sometimes when you're reading a series you need to you know kind of like have a refresher because you can sure miss a point or two yeah. well it's tricky you know to know how much to remind the reader of what's gone on before you know um the the less, the better, um, but sometimes you have to remind them. I mean, I, I've been married more than once, and, uh, you know, relationships, and I married my second husband twice, so th that's, okay. So it can happen, right? Um, so, you know, relationships have their waves, and I think that, you know, as long as the relationship in the book has waves, and yeah. you know, comings yeah, and goings, no, and we're okay. You did the yeah. wedding beautifully. Um, my point yeah. was that I couldn't remember. We did it well in a flashback, and I love that. I just couldn't remember what the actual circumstances surrounding the flashback were. But that's my fault. I'll go back and read book four all over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I sort of cheated the readers out of um, an actual wedding scene before, and so I got all these in book four, and I got all these. You know, I mean, we had a wedding scene, but it wasn't the wedding scene you expected to have so my my editor's like you know you better give the readers that wedding scene in book five so that's why we have the flashback so yeah so you know when you when you write a long series when readers read a long series you know you expect to be you know it shouldn't be an even tenor right, right. the emotional content should right. vary with the books and with the situations um, so as an author, you know, do you think about that? Do you think about, you know, what was the payoff in the last book? And, um, you know, what did I put the reader through? And now what am I going to do in this book? I try to forget the previous book completely, um, which I'm really good at. And <laughs> and write each one as though it's a standalone. Right. Right. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to read any before to understand this one completely. And... As Paula was saying, I throw in a minimum of, you know, a you know fact that you need that you need to know to carry on, but tiny, and I try to fold them in, you know, just like truffles in a cream sauce. You don't even notice them, you know. Yeah. That's that's so that's it. Each one is a standalone in right. my mind. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. Each is a standalone. That said, if you look over the course of your life, there are obvious chapters to our lives, right? And I see each book as a chapter in the heroine's and hero's life. So in terms of their personal story, as opposed to the mystery. But in life, there's aging. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, and, and the, so I had to confront this right from the get-go. Dogs, lifespans, and ours do not match up yeah. nicely, right? Mm -hmm. So I, right from the very beginning, the first book, Dog on It, I was getting all these emails, some in caps, is Chet going to die? If Chet dies, I'll never read another word you write. Right. That type of thing. Yeah, exactly. So not because I had already made the decision that things would develop in their lives. In, so time would be real in that sense. But Chet was not going to age. Right. And so maybe it's some magical thinking that goes on. But so that's the way I handled that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I did the season thing, so it takes four books to be a year. Yeah. So it slows down, it slows it down, slows yeah. it down and the dogs stay yeah, the yeah, same. Yeah. Excellent, thank you. Right. So, any of you have questions? Yes, I see a hand back there. Oh, I. Oh, that's a good idea for the next book. <laughs> ghost dog. I do have ghosts, so. But I don't have a ghost dog, but I'm going to think about that. Seriously. Thank you. I'll have to put you in the acknowledgments. There's a lot of poetry in this book. And I wanted to ask you, did you write it yourself? I wrote it myself. It's uh, really wonderful because the, 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 what, the key character there, the, the lady that owned you know, the estate and, uh, and her, her fame came in part from her poem about the witch and the grackle tree. Um, I figured that you must have written it yourself. I did. It was an insanely risky thing to do, <laughs> to write poetry. But, you know, again, I was sort of inspired by A.S. Byatt's Possession. If you haven't read that, it's a spectacular book that won the Booker Prize. It's, it's a tour de force. And, and it, this was sort of my little homage. And I thought, well, you know, I can't use other people's poetry. I'm going to have to try to write it. No, you really myself. can't because they will sue you and get away with the absolute <laughs> fortune because poetry and, and lyrics for songs yeah. are the two things that, if you're an author, you can't use without going through uh, contorted yeah. um, negotiations with the, with the creator. They can sue you for Oh, yeah. You're, you're allowed um, something called fair usage. But I don't even know if you can get away with a line or two of poetry, maybe it, one line. Yeah, because they, they can make the argument that that one line is the essence of yeah. the poem, right? My first book, Borrowing a Bone, the first book in the series, that's a line from a Pablo Neruda poem, Life is Only a Borrowing of Bones, which is the epigraph at the beginning of the book. And it took me months and months to track down the Spanish publisher yeah. to get the rights to use that line. Um, because, yeah, so, but it's a great line, so I had to it use is, it. It is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I figured you'd probably written the poetry because there's so much of it that it would have been almost impossible right. for you to have acquired yeah. permission. Yeah. I agonized over that, and every time I thought, oh, but, you know, I kept waiting for my editor to say something or for somebody to say something, and nobody did, and I thought, you know, he had all these other things he wanted me to fix, but not that. I kept thinking, okay, well, and so far, so good, so. That's great. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. No, I think it, it, it's a crucial part of this story that we get to know the poet, the poetess, 
we get to know her through her own words yeah. and her own her own work because you know her the story of her life is an essential arc yes. for the for the story you know so anyway um both of these but but let's go back to peter for a minute because the other thing i forgot to mention is that this book gave you an opportunity for punning you had a really good time in this book didn't you punning did i pun you did okay i don't remember any of them offhand but there probably are some one of the things, Chet, okay, it, not a talking dog. How many times did I blew Blue in the face. But he's narrating. But one of the things, it turns out that he's, he's literal-minded. So figurative language is a problem. And there is so much figurative language, um, especially using animals in our you know, when we're talking and animal imagery. So this comes up all the time and I have to restrain myself. <laughs> but I think, you know, let's, if you're familiar with Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie, you will know that she had a mystery writer character in her work called Ariadne Oliver. So right there, when you have an Ariadne as the, you know, name, I know you like Greek names, but aside from that, you know, I drop little hints. Yeah, so you had an opportunity to have a lot of fun, sort of riffing on yes. all of oh, that. Yes, no, for sure, and all the whole British mystery kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and I even while writing these little snatches of the Trudy Trudy Tremaine Christmas series, I even fantasized about well, I could maybe do a whole book for real about this. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Shame, a Trudy yeah. Tremaine Christmas. It would have yeah. been great. Yeah. Great question. I'm wondering how you figure out the right balance because you said that you have some darker tones and themes and then humor, but how do you how do you choose like what that right balance is for the book? That's a great question. How how do I choose the balance between the dark parts and the light? I my work is over the year over the years my work's become lighter than like some of my earlier books like Oblivion and and an end of story. But it's it's really in it's all about Chet's character, I think. It's all seen through his eyes, and he, although he can, bad things can happen to him, and he can, you know, be down, he get bounces back to his sort of reset condition very quickly, and that's one of joy in life. So I think the character, if I write that character properly, then exactly what you're talking about will happen in the right way. That's what that's what goes on. There. So you've heard me refer to Spencer as Peter, who actually is his name, and he wrote uh, many absolutely fabulous thrillers. Um, but I'm trying to remember: Did you ever write a book with a sequel before Chet and Bernie? No, I didn't think first so. First series and first time I've written in the first person. All my other books were in the third person. Close. So. so he has written some some dark thrillers, uh, which I'm personally very fond of. One of which takes place in Arizona, which I particularly loved. But uh, so Spencer Quinn is a is an interesting. Um, I don't want to call it a transformation because that's hardly fair, but an interesting development in the course of your writing career. Oh, there have been lots. Uh, <laughs> oh, and I've been there with career. you for yeah. many of them. No, so it's been a long career, but. I mean, you just sort of roll with that kind of thing. Like, um, because my earlier work was dark, and when I had this idea for Chet and Bernie, my agents thought, well, it's so much lighter, and it's in the first person, and it's a dog. 
maybe it won't find the right audience, that kind of thing. So eventually, and with Barbara's help, we, you know, got this, you know, pen name. In the end, Spencer Quinn, because the series has done well, and he kind of killed Peter Abrahams, but but I'm living with it. For me, he didn't. No, not at all. And you'll you'll notice that the series Chet and Bernie largely takes place in an unnamed Arizona town. But you know, yeah, yeah. exactly. So now there are some seats in Pottsdale mm-hmm. in this one. Yeah, there are right. So Paula, I mean, Spencer's written many, many more books than you. Yes. But you know, you're you're no, I know it's not a competition. But my point was that you still have. Um, because you, you're writing a series from the get-go here. Right. Um, right. You still have all kinds of avenues to explore as you're... I mean, people often wonder why do people write... I mean, authors write standalones versus authors writing series. And there are payoffs, certainly, for both. Um, but do you see that, you know, that your series has many potential further entries? Well, every time I write one, I think I'll never have another idea for the next one. Um, but then, of course, that's not true because, like Peter says, you know, there's a part of your brain that you can't control that thinks of these things, right? Um, and, and I love series. One of the reasons I write a series is because they're my favorite to read. I love revisiting whether it's Meg Ray or whether it's, you know, uh, whatever series character it is. I just love series books. So I love writing a series for that reason. And I look to my betters, you know, to see how they continue long series, right? Because the lessons are all there. And, and I try to do that, which is keep it fresh, right? But still sort of plumb, you know, the depths of these characters whom I grow to love, you know, like family. They're real people to me. So, so I love spending time with them, and I hope readers do too. Yeah. experience on so many different like pieces of um literature as far as like acquisition editor agent writer are you able to separate like editor and like take those hats off to do the writing or do they come into your writing and like how do you how do you manage all that it was very hard for me at first to turn off the editor in my head it still can be hard i just write something and then I edit it the next day and that's how I get back into it, right? Um, the agenting thing is a whole different thing. That's a whole marketing, publishing, you know, business brain that I can put aside easily. Um, I found it hard to market my own work. I spend my life, my day life, pitching my client's work, right? So that was the hardest part about being an author for me was learning to do the same thing for myself, that seemed, I don't know, unseemly somehow. You know, I was used to doing it for my clients, not for myself. So that I had to learn to do. That was, that was the hardest hat, a new hat I had to wear that I, I wasn't very good at. But I, I've gotten better at it. And I try to practice what I preach so that when I have a new client who's a new author, you know, they can benefit from my experience and the benefit of the, the experience of my other clients so that they're not you know, reinventing the wheel when they learn to be, because it's a big transition to go from writer to author, you know. A question maybe for both of you could address. Um, Does your main character 
two way friendship, them being a, more of a loner, do they have to have a potential for a relationship? Or can you have a successful book series or book with uh, a main character who's uh, okay with being alone? And once they're strong enough personally, that they don't have to have a person on the side or a potential person on the side. It seems like the editors, agents, or whatever, push for that. Well, no one ever pushed me, and um, see, one. Th I think you're really onto something. There, the lone character is a very powerful symbol, and it's a. And I like working with the lone character a lot. Um, and I think if the character isn't alone, to me, you've turned down the heat a little bit. So I like it. But with the Chet and Bernie series, I mean, the the heart of that series is the is their relationship. It's not some relationship outside the two of them. It's there. So I would never cleave that. I have had times when they've been separated, mm -hmm. but each of them wants desperately, you know, to find in danger, right? And I, so, but the lone character, sure, like, you know, your Humphrey Bogart figure or someone like that. I mean, those are highly appealing. And also it's a very American mm -hmm. trope. Um, that goes way, way back in our history, and and I like it a lot. And and in some of my other books, I've written that sort of character quite a bit. Yeah, well, no, uh, that yeah. would be like doing this to myself, yeah. right? Yeah. What what did you think about that? Well, I mean, you have Jack Reacher. You have all kinds of series with lone lone characters. I love to read his and her mysteries. I you know. I wanted to be Julia Spencer Fleming when I grew up. She writes a mystery set in upstate New York. She's a wonderful writer, the Claire and Russ um, series. And I love those. If you read Ellie Griffiths, her Ruth Galloway series, Ruth and Nelson, um, Deborah Crombie's series, I love his and her mysteries. And so that's why I wanted to write one, right? I followed the old advice, you know, write what you want to read. And I wanted to read his and her mysteries. So. Since that was my favorite, um, I decided to write one of those. Uh, it's a different, different kind of dynamic, right? And there's more really people to keep track of. The market, you know, because the market changes all the time. You have to right. write what works for you and hope that you're catching the market at the right moment. But it's constantly evolving, and you know, nobody knows what the next big thing is until it shows up, and it's usually something completely unexpected. <laughs> Um, and then everybody wants to imitate it. So, you know, we got Silence of the Lamb and then we had a spate of serial killers. An alien and dog. I've never done an alien. No, no. But, you know. Um, I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fascinating subject and publishing uh, frequently today claims that it's data-driven, but in point of fact, it isn't because... A, they don't really have a way to verify a huge amount of it, as I know from working in the supply side. And B, I don't, I don't know that polls, I mean, I think, for example, that at least one political party currently is believing it's polls when it probably shouldn't be, uh, because they're not necessarily asking the right people. You know, that, that's a big danger if you're a pollster is who is the sample, mm -hmm. sample audience, and you can come out with a surprising result if you haven't 
actually delved into the right spectrum. So publishing tends to follow success, right? right. Until right. the next big thing comes right. along. So who would have expected that Rebecca, what's her name, Yarrow, in the fourth, was it the fourth wing, has totally dominated publishing recently. And I would never have guessed that Where the Crawdads Sing would have been a bestseller for three years. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'd think I could see them. But sometimes, you know, they go by me and I think, really? Um, all the light you cannot see is about to become a TV special. Mm -hmm. And it took over the market for quite a yeah, while. And there's no, there's no predicting a lot of them. You know, why is it that people fall in love with a particular, you know, particular thing? The Da Vinci Code, there's another one. So I don't know. It's a... You just have to write as an author. You have to write what you believe in and what you what you love. And if you try to follow the market or guess what the next big thing is, you may not right. may not touch it. Do you think that's fair? Totally, totally. Yeah. Right, Patrick, you're lurking. Do we have any audience questions? Oh, no. please don't tell me. <laughs> I don't want to be depressed. <laughs> right? Yes, ma'am. Yes. What's your connection with Arizona? Only that I I really love it here. So and I've spent lots of time, but I haven't lived here for you know like on a permanent basis at all. But what, when I started, this, I wanted this chat to I wanted to take place in a big metropolitan area, but with vast wilderness nearby. Um, so that we, you know, because Chet would have, you know, because he's an animal, right? And I wanted him to be able to do that. And and I love the desert. And I knew, like, it does, the desert has a little effect on me that I know I can write about it beyond a journalistic kind of level of writing. Whereas if I'm living in a place and writing about it, it's it's hard to, See, if I'm not in Arizona, but I'm writing about it, I have to reimagine the whole thing. If I'm living in a place, I don't have to reimagine it. And that act of reimagining, we could call art. And that art ends up on the page. Uh, yeah. And you spent time here, so oh, yeah. it was not totally yeah. unfamiliar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like I, yeah. I looked at a few postcards. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, Pat. No, but I really want that to happen. Could that happen tonight? <laughs> Patrick's asking if anyone's come up to me with a Chet and Bernie tattoo. That would be one in the back. Any? No. You know what? Your Thank next you, your next visit, we are going to design a Chet and Bernie tattoo for everybody who buys a book. Okay, that's that a great. Be, idea. Remind that's great. me because that's, that's great a great idea. idea. Thank you. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It could be a Gila monster. That's right. <laughs> We're going to be here in the desert. I love it. Right. I'm sorry. I saw a hand. Uh, if Peter would take a minute to go back to Mrs. Plansky for a moment. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. And just tell us how many more Plansky family members have you met? Because that story has oh. been folded on your. Okay, that Facebook happened after I was I here. Yeah. Okay, was oh, this is a long, long story. Yeah. I, there's no time for a long, long story, but. The title, Mrs. Plansky's Revenge. Um, the whole book, this is the, my book that came out this summer, not a 
Chet and Bernie. It's about this uh, well-off widow in Florida named Mrs. Plancy who's scammed by Romanian scammers, and she goes to Romania to get her money back. And the idea occurred to me one day on my bike ride, including the name Mrs. Plansky, but I couldn't figure out why I picked that name. And then it hit me that it went back to my dad and how someone had tried to scam him. And my dad and I both went to the same college, and the track coach was Tony Plansky. Uh, over all those years in between and even before and after, who was a legendary figure at the college I went to and also in, in New England sports in general and post-World War I. So that's where the name Plansky came from. So I was at a book signing after this in the summer and all of a sudden in the audience, two women stood up and they were the grandniece and, grand, and great-granddaughter of Tony Plansky. And they wanted to know you know, why I had explained in the talk and that's why they were there. So, I mean, it was very moving and I went down, I shook hands with them and it was great. Two weeks later at another signing, four more Planskys <laughs> showed up. They had even baked cookies according to the original Mrs. Plansky's recipe, Tony's, but who, anyway, and it was just, it's very, very moving because life and art you know, just came together like that. And it was a, a wonderful moment for me and, and actually for them too. So yeah, thanks for asking that. We have Thanksgiving dinner together. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we need a bigger table. Yeah, it's incredible. Mrs. Blansky's Revenge is a truly remarkable book. We still have a few copies left over for when Peter was here in the summer. It's one of my very favorite books. And Mrs. Plansky, um is what, in her 70s? 71. 71. Yeah. Um, and... It's interesting to see her navigate being 71, but also remembering powers of her youth. So I have to tell you, the motorcycle scene is really splendid. Oh, thank you. I really love the thank motorcycle scene. Mrs. Plansky is in Romania and, and has to ride a motorcycle. It's great. Uh, it's a really wonderful book, and it is probably a standalone, but who knows. Um, but... You know, there there are stories that when they're told, they're told. You know, that's it. Gone with the wind. Everybody went back. Scarlett went back to Tara. I never wanted to know what happened to her after that. So some readers just she became an influence. <laughs> <laughs> she became a seamstress. Cause remember, she'd sewn a dress out of the grapes. So she became a couturier in post-Civil War patterns, right? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> right. No, I mean, seriously, I, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard for us as readers to let go of characters, but I think sometimes there are stories that, you know, are complete in and of themselves. And I'm, I'm with Paul. I love series, uh, but also I really love standalones. You know, I think sometimes they're a entirely satisfactory experience. Does anybody have a final question they'd like to ask? Are we complete? Do you have a final comment you'd like to make? Are you complete? Oh, I'm just thrilled to be here. It's always a thrill to be here. Thank everyone for coming. Yeah. Well, thank you. indeed. Really nice. Thank you all very much it. indeed. Yeah. Thanks. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.